How many of you remember that special time in your life called driver's ed? <laughs> I remember mine like it was yesterday. Happened in Ohio where I grew up. I remember my dad. He, we had this little Ford Escort GT. It was like this turquoise color. It was real cool. And he said, Scott, let me take you down to Finley State Park. And Finley State Park was this place where we would always go camping growing up. And, and I remember the, the steps that he went through. First, he would be behind the wheel, and, and he would drive here, do this, back up, do this. Then we'd go out on a railroad, do this. And, and I watched him for a long time. But then there came that moment where he said, it's your turn. And he stepped out of the driver's side, and I remember the, the excitement and the fear all at once hitting me. He said, hop in there. I remember sitting behind that driver's seat and feeling like, wow, my dad trusts me with this? This is amazing. And so we tried some stuff in the parking lot, and then I remember the big test. You've seen movies where they portray these driver's tests, and I had the instructor that's in all those movies. Like the one in Alexander's Bad Day, a horrible, really bad, horrible day. We just watched that. Sat in there, and I, I remember, put the seatbelt on, started the car. And the instructor said, I didn't tell you to start the car. So I turned it off, and we sat there for like two minutes. At which point he says, when are you going to start the car? I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is not going to go well. I remember driving down little side streets, and uh, I remember at one point, I was going 25 or 30, and it was a 25, so I was already on the edge. I saw a squirrel dart out into the road, and instead of hitting the, the brake, I accidentally hit the gas, sped up to 35. <laughs> the, <laughs> the squirrel got out of there, but I could see the instructor... We got back, and I, I, long story short, I failed that first time. But I passed the second time. But yes, I, I have my license. But what I, what I appreciated about that process was my dad was, was very methodical in the way he did it. He said, here, I'm going to do it. You watch me for a while. And now I'm going to let you do it. There came that moment. And, and I see the same kind of training technique model used by Jesus. I see him doing that with his disciples in Luke chapter 9. Uh, you remember back in Luke chapter 6, he had chose 12. He chose them. And Mark says that he chose them for two reasons. Mark chapter 6 says he chose them so that they might be with him. That was the first part. And that's the communion that we talk about. Communion with God. Worship. Fellowship. He chose them so that they might be with him. But you know what else? so that he might send them out. It says that in Mark 6, so that they could be with him and send them out. That's where you get the commission. We're not called to just stay with Jesus, stay with Jesus' people. We've got a, a mission. And so we get to Luke chapter 9, and we see him beginning to flesh this out. It says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, if you've been with us for a couple weeks, you know that this training with him has been very intentional. 
You remember, he, he showed them on the sea how he had power over nature. He showed them how he had power over demons when he set the demon-possessed man free. Last, last week we saw how he healed a sick woman that t- just touched him in the middle of a crowd and, and raised a dead girl. They're learning. They're saying, wow, Jesus has a lot of power. He loves people. He has compassion on people. They watched him preach the kingdom of God. And now's the moment where he says, okay, you guys, you've seen me do this. Now it's your turn. We don't have the exact same mission as those, those men. It was a short-lived mission. It was brief. They came back and reported. They were preaching the kingdom of God. We preach the completed good news of Jesus dying for our sins and rising again. But there's so much we can learn from what happened here. Let's go back to verse 1 and 2, please. What does that say right after he called the twelve together? He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Check this out. When God calls us to be on mission with him, he gives us the tools we need for the job. How many of you know that? How many of you trust that? How many of you know it's not always the gifts we wish we could have? We may not always appreciate it because sometimes I think we misunderstand life. We think life is a a cruise journey. Jesus says it's a mission. We're on mission. And so when you're on mission, you appreciate gifts that you wouldn't appreciate if you're on a cruise. Ken Wisma wrote a book called The Grand Paradox. He talks about uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings series, how there are key moments in each of those series where the main players meet someone. In the Chronicles of Narnia, you remember they met Father Christmas. And he gave them some gifts. He gave Lucy this, this vial of healing ointment. He gave Peter a sword. In Lord of the Rings, they met the elven queen, and she gave Frodo Baggins this little vial of starlight. Why did they get those gifts? Lucy got the healing ointment because they were going into a war, and she would need to heal folks. Peter got the sword because he was to lead that army into the battle, Frodo got the vial of starlight because he was taking the ring into the heart of Mordor. All right? Life was not going to be easy for these folks. But throughout the story, they received what they needed. They wouldn't have appreciated those things if they had been living in the comfort of their own home, living a life of comfort. You can bet they appreciated when they were on the missions that they were. So we look at the things that God gives us for our mission the faith to carry on and step out and be bold when when I have that opportunity to share Jesus, the the perseverance to keep on keeping on, the love for those folks that that are hard to love. And all of a sudden I say, wow, maybe God's given me more gifts than I realize and I need to appreciate the tools that He's given me. Verse 3, we see another principle. He told them, take nothing for the journey. Now, how many of you would say, hold up, Jesus, right there. I take five suitcases when I travel. <laughs> no, Jesus. Take, but he says, take nothing for the journey. No staff for walking. No bag. People debate about what kind of bag this was. Was it just a bag for carrying stuff? Or sometimes in this day, religious teachers would travel with a begging bag. And when they taught, they would say, please, please give, please give. Either way, he says, no bag, no bread, 
All right, no food, no, no. And this is a day where you don't just get where you're going in four hours, right? You, you're traveling long distances. No money, no extra shirt. Whatever, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. Before we go on, I want to camp on that first part of that passage, though. Obviously, we know this particular set of rules of what not to take was temporary because later in Luke chapter 23, he looks at his same disciples and he says, if you've got a bag, take it now. If you've got a sword, take it now. So this was a temporary list of instructions, but what isn't temporary about this? What is Jesus trying to drive into the hearts of his followers as they go out to preach and heal? Absolutely. He's saying, trust in my Father to take care of you. Don't, don't trust in the things that you've accumulated, that you carry along with you. Trust in me. That lesson never gets old. And it penetrates to our hearts today to say, in a country of affluence where it's not a sin necessarily to be affluent, have we come away from this basic dependence on God? When I step out of this service this morning, am I trusting in God or am I trusting in my own ability to make things come together? This is a question that never dies. Another point, after dependence on God, look what it says, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. This is practical on one level. What happens if you're visiting someone and you don't like their food, and you don't like what time they get up, and, and you don't like their music, and, and you say, I, I'm going to go stay with this other relative. What happens to the first relative? Yeah, they, they feel hurt, right? That's part of, I think, what Jesus is getting at. You don't want to hurt your host. You don't want to insult them. You, you want to be a gracious guest, but also, there may be more to this. There's, there's a word in there that I want to camp on a little bit. It is stay. Stay there in that house until you leave that town. And I think a couple thoughts here. Some of us are always so ready to move on to the next thing. At the drop of a hat. Commitment for us is, is a foreign concept, and for whatever reason, whether it's fear of people really getting to know me or just wanting the perfect situation all the time. There are some of us that struggle to put down roots. Is there a time in life to move on? You bet. That's not what I'm talking about. But, but what I'm talking about is I've got a friend who, who asked about, he's dreaming about maybe planting a church. And he asked me, what do you think about the uh, possibility of me planting a church? And I said, that's exciting. And it's, I'd love to see that happen. But one question I think needs to be wrestled with is, are you willing to ride it out through the ups and the downs for a season and not run when it gets tough? I don't think that's only important for church planters. I think it's important in families when life gets tough and I'm sharing Jesus with those people around me. Am I just going to bail or am I going to stay there and minister to them? Jesus stayed here 33 years. He wasn't just a flash in the pan. 
I also think about the nature of what Jesus has called us to do. Go into all the world and make converts. Is that what he says? No. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. Right, I can make a convert in a, in a second. Making a disciple who walks in the footsteps of Jesus emulates his life, learns to obey his commands, that takes a lifetime often. Are we willing to invest that kind of time and energy into the folks that we share Jesus with? I think also there is a time to move on, as we mentioned. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This is an interesting concept, because Jews would do this all the time. They heard this, shake the dust off your feet, and they're like, yeah, I do that. Because what they would do is, when they had to cross into Gentile territory, as soon as they got back in their borders, they would do that. Get this dust off from these unbelieving Gentiles. (laughs) And what what, uh, Jesus is telling his disciples is, if people do not receive me, number one, you You don't have to stay there and ram it down their throats, okay? We're seed planters. It also says something about the people who reject Jesus. When the Jews heard this, what they hear is people who reject Jesus are in the same boat as unbelieving Gentiles. It says this is a serious and weighty matter. It brings a freedom to us as we go out to share the gospel. It frees us to focus where the fruit is happening. The people that welcome you in that first house, other passages call them A person of peace. You know what a person of peace is? It's someone who you get to know and they, they receive you and they welcome you. And often these people of peace have other friends that they have connections with. Maybe it's at your workplace. Maybe they're the popular person at work and they're, they're friends with everybody. They got 10 or 12 people. Well, as a believer, if you get to know that person of peace and build that relationship, often that person of peace will then open up that relationship to the other 10 or 12. It could be a person you get to know at a, at a sports club where you work out or a restaurant that you commonly frequent. Jesus is saying, look for that person of peace and focus on them. Cultivate that relationship and see where the opportunities take you. Don't spend a lot of time trying to bang on doors that have been closed in your face. Verse 6, I want to look at something important here. They set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good what? News. And healing people everywhere. I want to focus on that word news. Uh, Tim Keller has a whole chapter in one of his books called The King's Cross where he talks about the difference between news and and advice. It wasn't uncommon in these days that word proclaim, it, it comes back to the word herald. A king would also often have a herald that would go out and say, such and such has happened in the kingdom. Listen to what has happened. The king and his wife have had a baby or, or the king and his armies overcame this army. It was always news. Okay? That's what these guys were to do. They were to proclaim good news. What Tim Keller talks about in his book that challenged me is often as Christians, we fall into the trap of offering only advice. Oh, you're in this situation, you need to do this and this and this and this and this. That'll be just just fine. Oh, no, don't do that. And he says there's a time and a place for advice in our lives, right? But ultimately, advice like that 
is more discouraging to the unbeliever than anything. Because if we believe what the Bible says about those who have not yet come to Jesus, they're dead in their sins. To give advice to someone who is dead in their sins is like torture. What they need more than our advice is good news. For these guys, it was that the kingdom of God is near. For us, it's that Jesus has come. He has died for your sins. He rose again to bring forgiveness, healing, and wholeness into your life. That's what we need to be proclaiming. So that verse just leads me to ask, are you primarily a good news uh, proclaimer or an advice proclaimer? Maybe we need to make some adjustments. Now you remember that Jesus had told a parable about the four soils that there were going to be a bunch of different responses, right? When, when these guys went out and scattered the seed, there's going to be a lot of different responses. Some people are going to hear it and they're going to be excited at first, but when the persecution comes, they're going to run away. Some people are going to be choked out by the worries of this world. Some people are going to receive it and, and, and they're going to bear a crop. Do you remember the first group? It won't even settle in. The enemy will come and, and steal it from their hearts because their hearts are hard. I believe we may have an early picture of that in verse 7. These guys are out there spreading the word throughout Galilee. Watch King Herod. Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on. Now, Herod's a high up in the land, so this tells us one thing, that the word about Jesus and, and his guys going out spreading this news, it's, it's getting up there. It's getting around. They're, they're causing a stir. This Herod is the son of the Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus when he was little. That Herod died. This is the guy that killed John the Baptist, had his head cut off. He's the one that, that hears what's going on. He's a high-up ruler, a tetrarch, a ruler of Galilee. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. I think that one in particular probably really bothered him because when you do something sinful, like have someone's head chopped off, you can imagine the sleepless nights Herod may have had. And then you can imagine why his mind may have gone there. Mark 6 says that's what he concluded, that this was John come back from the dead. Oh, no. <laughs> what did I do? He's here to get me. You know, you can imagine that kind of panic. Others that Elijah had appeared. Many of the Jews were waiting for that. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? How could, how could it be John? And he tried to see him. Here's the thing. Herod never met Jesus until the trial week. He never met him until Luke chapter 23. And I want you to hear what happened when Herod met Jesus for the first time. Finally saw him face to face. We're going to look at Luke 23, 8 and 9. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. So, so what's going on here? He wants basically dance, monkey dance. I want to see you do some tricks. I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to answer them. But look at this. Verse 9 says, but Jesus made no answer. 
This is one of the few people, if not the only person, that asked Jesus for a response and never heard anything. Why? Do you believe in a Jesus that refuses answers to people that are genuinely seeking the truth? Do you believe in a Jesus that would refuse hope to someone that, that was ready to bend their will to it? I don't. I think part of what's going on here is there's a key question coming up here. Who then is this? We're going to see this become more important throughout the book of Luke. Who is this Jesus? But I think what's going on here is, is as important as that question is, it may be even more important. Why am I asking that question? That may have as much weight as to whether you find your answer as the question itself. If it's just curiosity, Jesus isn't into playing games. If it's only fear, like I don't want to get in trouble, so I better figure out who this is, Jesus is looking for more than that. He's looking for a will that by the power of the Holy Spirit, when it hears who Jesus is, will bow to Him as Messiah and Savior and receive Him. This is challenging to me as I think about those we talk to who are on their own spiritual pursuits. If you're here this morning asking that question, who is this Jesus? I'd encourage you to go deeper and say, why am I asking that? Is it so that I can come to him as my savior for life? Because he loves to answer that question. One more thing I see in this passage before we close. Verses 10 and 11. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Mark tells us they did this specifically to rest. To rest. We don't know how long they had been out working, but Jesus knew the importance of balance in life. Okay, these men had been out preaching the gospel, healing, casting out demons. When they came back, Jesus didn't right away say, hey, I got one more thing for you. There's another town over here. There's a lady who's sick and a couple people with demons. Go get them. Isn't that how life feels sometimes? No, no rest. Jesus says, no, come away with me. I want to show you an important life shape. We showed you the up and out triangle a couple weeks ago. This is a different one from the same guy, Mike Breen leads missional communities in Europe and does trainings in the United States. He says, we need to live life on this pendulum that swings between abiding in Jesus and resting in Him and fruitfulness working for Him. We need to constantly have this rhythm that swings back and forth, back and forth. And as you look at that spectrum, I'd ask you, does your life swing on that pendulum? What happens often is we get caught up in one end or the other, right? Some of us are more inclined to make rest an idol, and then, and then we do nothing for the kingdom. Others of us are more inclined to make work or ministry an idol, and we burn out. What we see Jesus modeling with his disciples is life as a follower of Jesus should include both should include seasons of busy, active, passionate work for him. But it should also include rest to avoid burnout. Let's go back to the passage. It's interesting what happens. 
That was the intention. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. Now, Jesus has a choice here. Get out of here! Right? We're resting, is one possibility. But what do we see in our Savior? As he welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. You see this beautiful balance. He believes in productive ministry and he believes in rest, but the rest does not become an idol to where he says, nope, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't share with you about Jesus can't heal that, can't do that, I'm resting. He, he keeps it all in this beautiful balance and it challenges us to ask as we're sent, what is the balance? Do, do, do we walk with that kind of balance? So I want to close just by walking through a little bit of where we've been. I ask you to close your eyes if you'd like, just to, just to ponder. We see the heart of a missionary God in this passage, ascending God. And I wonder if it, if it blows us away as it ought to that he says, hey, you, get behind the wheel. It's your turn. It's your turn to talk to that neighbor about Jesus. It's, it's your turn uh, to bring healing into that family. God cares about the physical and the spiritual. It's your turn. I've given you what you need. Are you depending on me? Is there some place right now where God has you stationed where he's saying, hey, stay here for a while. I know, I know you want to move on. Stay. Stay. I've got something to do. Is there some place you need to move on from? Has somebody slammed the door in your face and you, you've wrongly said, I'm going to keep ramming? Maybe there's a place you need to move on. Are you giving good news or advice primarily? If you're seeking Christ this morning, when we look at Herod, I'd encourage you to ask that question. Why am I seeking Him? Is it with a will ready to bend to the truth? I pray it's so. And last but not least, as we look at that pendulum of rest and work, where are you at on there? There may be someone here that are so tired this morning because you've just been running flat out. You need that rest. You need to swing back into that abiding and, and being and hearing and reading and praying again. There may be others who've been stuck in the rest. We say, God, help me. Help me be fruitful again. Give me those opportunities. Show me. Father, I just thank you for this example of Jesus and his... 12, and I pray that your spirit would, would do whatever you wish with this in our hearts. I believe you're the same sending Savior that spoke to them. I also believe that when you send us today, we've got your Holy Spirit living inside us. The missionary God not only sends us now, he, he goes with us. And I pray that you'd use us on that mission this week in powerful ways, to change our community, to change our world. Father, we lay our lives on the altar and say, open our eyes to those opportunities. Don't let us pass them by. Whether it's the store I shop at, the place I work, the field I walk in, the vacation I'm on, Lord, open our eyes to those looking for the good news that you've given us to share. In Jesus' name, amen.